there, I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Before listening, please note that there's a small amount of information in this interview that might be distressing. Welcome to today's episode of Aging Fearlessly with Karen Sander. Stories are a vital part of our lives as humans. Stories connect us, they help educate us, they evoke emotions, sometimes laughter, others tears. They are the link to the history of the world that we live in. The subject of this interview today is Henry Bernard, a well-respected GP on the northern beaches of Sydney from 1956 to 2002. Henry served the community going beyond the call of duty as a GP at his Narrabeen and Monavale practices as well as working in the local hospitals. Henry worked long hours, including weekends, to make certain his patients were well cared for and received the medical attention they needed and deserved. My guest today is also a doctor. In fact, it is Henry's eldest son, Tony. Tony is an author as well as a doctor and today shares insight into Henry's extraordinary life and the book that he has written, The Ghost Tattoo, in honour of his father. Welcome, Tony. Oh, thank you for having me. It is really exciting to have you here today because, first of all, I knew your father very briefly. He was my GP when I moved to the Northern Beaches in 1975 when I moved from the southern suburbs, the east, to the Northern Beaches. And my mother chose your father's practice for us to attend. So this is a real honour for me. I'm very excited. Thank you. So, Tony, tell us a little bit about just you, your story. Um, well, uh, myself and my brother and sister grew up um, uh, above the surgery in uh, Narrabeen, right opposite the Baby Health Centre, which is now the Tramshed Cafe. Um, uh, our father was a local GP, and as I said, his surgery was underneath the house. Uh, we went to the local uh, Narrabeen Primary School, and, uh, and then I went on to Pitwater High School at Mona Vale. So I grew up um, the standard um, blissful life of growing up on the northern beaches. Um, we had the surf. Uh, at Narrabeen, we had the lake. So we used to canoe a lot, swim in the lake. Um, I was in the scouts, so we did a lot of uh, camping and bushwalking. And, uh, and I also used to sail up on pit water. So that was, a, that was the lifestyle we grew up with at Narrabeen. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, uh, and I went on to, I mean, I always really wanted to be a doctor like my father, although I had to have a deviation via dental school um, because of my slightly poorer HSC remarks. Um, but um, in the end, um, in England, I retrained in medicine. Uh, and so I've been back in Australia since 1990. Actually, sorry, I've been back in this Newcastle since 1988 uh, working as a doctor up there for a few years before 
coming back to Sydney and then I've been working, I did train in general practice initially in, in Narrabeen and Avalon, um, working in practices there, but I drifted back into the, in, in 1991 into Monavale Hospital, into the emergency department where uh, I worked really since 1981 in Monavale Hospital Emergency Department uh, until the hospital or the emergency department closed in 2018, just on th- over three years ago, and the new Northern Beaches Hospital was built. So I did, I ha- I, I ne- and I actually work between two both uh, places now. I work in the Northern Beaches Hospital Emergency Department uh, a couple of shifts a week, and I also still work in the um, in the Monavale, the old emergency department Monavale uh, became the Monavale Urgent Care Centre and I work there as well. And, and I'm currently next door in the vaccination centre uh, supporting the COVID vaccination um, project. So you followed program. somewhat in your father's footsteps, as did your brother? Nick, yeah, now my brother Nick uh, did general practice. Actually, all three of us did. Uh, our father was very keen that we, that we do medicine like himself. He considered it a... a well, it was a bit of a family tradition, but uh, he also impressed on us. Uh, he, he felt it was very important for our security to do medicine as well. Um, so my brother actually took over my father's practice at Narrabeen. Uh, he's moved it around the corner to Albert Street uh, uh, in 2007, I think it was, or 2008. Yeah, Narrabeen Family Medical there with about six or seven doctors working there. It's a very busy practice now. Mm, and your sister Fiona? She also became a GP. Uh, she spent uh, a large part of her um, practicing life in England, in um, London and Brighton. Uh, she raised a family there in Britain. Uh, she's returned to Australia and is actually in kind of semi-retirement now. Actually, she's just gone back to the UK. But she, yeah, she's been working in Australia and um, uh, since retiring as a GP in England. So she, she was working here as both in general practice and also in the vaccinations service. So in the introduction, I spoke of you being an author and you've just written a book which is a story about your father's life, The Ghost Tattoo. Why is it so important to you and your father to share this story of The Ghost Tattoo? Um, Yeah, so despite the fact of growing up in such an idyllic place as um, Narrabeen, uh, my father had actually come 10 years earlier so in in in, in when we started Narrabeen in 56 but he he came to Australia in 1947 uh, having survived the Holocaust in Poland uh, my father came from a, um, a secular Jewish family in Poland um, and was unfortunate enough to have to experience the full spectrum of the Holocaust uh, but was lucky enough unlike most of the rest of his family uh, to survive so he he was fortunate enough to survive um, came to Australia uh, in 47 completed his medical training here in Australia and then became a GP and and really he just immersed himself on life on the northern beaches we had no religion he we he hid his Jewish identity we didn't even know we were Jewish until uh, my teens Uh, we didn't even recognize any Jewish festivals or holidays we never went to any uh, religious ceremonies or anything like that for example I, I used to have to go to sit in the playground during scripture because I, we had no religion and he anglicized his name he swapped his his name Bijinsky so his name was Henry Bernard Bijinsky 
Bernard being his middle name and Bernard was his father's first name. But he swapped his middle and last name around in the 50s. He wanted to anglicise his name. So it became Henry Bierzynski Bernard. And that's how we, we grew up. But we knew that he'd been in camps during the war because he had the tattoo on his left forearm and he would talk about the camps, the concentration camps, although we didn't know what a concentration camp was. When I was a kid in the 60s, no one knew what Auschwitz mm. was. Well, when I say no, people really wasn't a general understanding of that. I, just having watched war films, I thought he was, had been in a prisoner war camp. I started to realise during my teens that my father had an unusual life, but he was not one to talk about. As I said, he talked... He, he freely talked about his time in Auschwitz and other uh, later camps in the war. But when we pressed him about earlier events in the war, what had happened to his parents, because we knew that they died, uh, what had happened to his girlfriend, because we knew that she died, he'd just say, I don't want to talk about that. Mm. And, and actually it became an unwritten... You know, we just understood not to ask him about earlier events in the war. Mm. And that must have been hard, but... How did your father's own struggles impact your sense of identity? Well, as I said, we had no religious identity at all. I actually ended up going to Catholic scripture because our babysitter was the Catholic scripture teacher and she took pity on me and my father agreed I could go. So I actually ended up with a Catholic upbringing and education initially. Uh, I wasn't able to take communion because we hadn't been um, baptised. Uh, I couldn't understand that. I, I asked my father why not, and as he just say, you can decide when you're 18. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, so as I started to uh, understand about his Jewish background, and that came about when he was, flown, he was flown by the West German government to Germany in 1970 when I was about 15 um, to, go, to be a witness at a war crimes trial. Uh, and I'd say, well, what happened? He said, I saw a few people being shot back in Poland during the war. And he wouldn't really elaborate more than that. But our housekeeper at the time explained that that was because he was uh, Jewish and that we were Jewish. That was really the first time I really fully understand mm. I was Jewish. Now, around that time, I'd seen a Jewish boy at Pittwater High be abused. Well, I didn't see him be abused, but the he, he had been abused uh, about being Jewish. And... The three uh, perpetrators uh, were brought in, what we saw, were brought in to the front of the class and had to read out letters of apology to this boy. And this boy was quite obvious, flamboyantly Jewish. We want to say he used to wear a Star of David and people knew he was Jewish. So I had this uneasy sense you know, of my father's reticence about it. If you asked me then, I, would, I said, well, no, I'm, I'm not Jewish, uh, I'm Australian, I have no religion. That was my attitude. And I didn't see being Jewish as a racial thing. I just saw it as a religion. Mm-hmm. Um, or as now I can see, it's a heritage thing and a, and, and, and a part of one's background. Um, so, yeah, I, I picked up that. I definitely, We definitely sensed my father's uh, unease um, at his background. Mm. You visited Poland numerous times, four times, is it? Or four or five times yeah, you visited Yeah, I've Poland. been back four times with my father. And what struck you most about the history and the culture of Poland? The thing that really strikes me about Poland, I mean, I've visited from 1979 to the last 
trip with my father was 2001. So I went four trips over that time, twice when it was still communist Poland behind the Iron Curtain and twice when it was newly liberated Poland in the, in, in the 90s and 2001 as a, as a uh, capitalist country, if you like. The thing about Poland when you visit, I mean, you know, it's superficial. Well, it's, it's an uh, attractive country. It's got a lot of history, etc. But the place is just seeped in violence. There are battle sites and um, war memorials and memorials to atrocities um, all over the country. Um, it's the site of the Nazi death camps. We're all on, uh, on Polish territory. So those memorials are there. Uh, but, I mean, you can go back. There, there, there are medieval battles, you know, mm. and you're real in the Teutonic Knights. They have this huge castle um, in the north of Poland um, at, um, I think it's called Marlborg Castle. It's a, you know, huge castle. You, you realise that Poland has just been the trampling... It's been trampled by Russians and by Germans who've been fighting each other for centuries. Mm. And Poland's always kind of the battleground between these two much bigger aggressive nations this is quite besides the holocaust there's a violent history there that's separate to and then it is obviously massively enhanced because of the the you know the bulk of the of the exterminations the holocaust occurred within poland well i have visited poland as you and i've discussed and my first trip there was 1992 then 94 and 96 and i went there for work in the film industry and um In 1992, it was only two years since it had been liberated and it was a very, very poor country and over that next four years that I visited it, it changed a lot. But I've visited many of the sites that you've talked about, Paviak and the memorials I've been to, Auschwitz, and um, and they're not great places to visit but seeing them brings to light what really did happen you know, hence this interview to me, it takes me on another journey through Poland from your view and from your father's view. So, yeah, you chose a song today and I'm going to guess why you've chosen this song, but Surfing USA. Yeah, I chose this song to, um, because I, I remember it well. Uh, it came out in the 60s when I was growing up in Narrabeen, in the surfing, sailing culture of Narrabeen. And I think it... it uh, and, and actually, in the lyrics, they refer to North Narrabeen as a great... as a surfing spot. Um, so I think it really captured the feel of the Narrabeen I grew up in. Um, and that's that's why I chose it. It had some of the greatest surfers, Simon Anderson, yeah. you know, world well, I was champion. In, I, he was in my class at school, oh. at primary school, Simon Anderson, yeah. Yeah, no, and the, the Anderson family, there was some amazing... Uh, surfers that grew up around there and I know exactly because I moved to the area when I was 17 and of course you know blonde haired blue eyed as you would have known and you know was the way to be. Nat, Nat Young Nat he, Young, he yeah. lived, came from Collaroy because my, my sister used to go to his mother's childcare so, uh, <laughs> so. yeah it's just an amazing place so let's listen to Surfing USA You are listening to Radio Northern Beaches 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. 
Welcome back to Aging Fearlessly. I'm in the studio today with Dr. Tony Bernard, who is also now the author of The Ghost Tattoo, which is a story of his father's life. So, Tony, how did it feel to learn about your family history as an adult? And how did this knowledge give you a better understanding of your father? Yes, well, over the period of my life and on trips back to Poland, my father's who was always very reluctant to talk about um, the most traumatic parts of the Holocaust for him and his family, he started to reveal more and more about his story. And seeing the movie Schindler's List had a great effect on him in the 90s. Um, He would say a number of events that he saw in the movie, uh, depicted in the movie, actually occurred to him personally, being shot in the head uh, by a a Gestapo man whose gun was out of bullets. Um, uh, That particularly, that was a similar scene in the movie. Yeah, so in his his mid-80s, he pestered me, kept asking me to videotape him telling his story. Uh, And so I did, and we, we did about three hours a day on, I think, three separate days from memory. I had a video recorded then. It wasn't so easy. You didn't have mobile phones with... Uh, video mm. in them like that. We had to have a, a video camera. recorder with on tripod with tape. Um, and he told this story. And um, from his perspective, that was it. He'd done his duty. He'd told. But I realised that the fact in his story there was so much detail, and um, he, he was actually one of so few who survived that he was really wanting to put on the record what he had seen happen. Uh, so I started to recognise that there was some importance in his story um, and that was actually a bit more uh, different from a lot of the stories you hear because it's even though he was at Auschwitz for three months of the year, um, his story actually takes you into what I call the deep Holocaust. I mean, the Holocaust started way back in '39, but most people don't really understand that. I mean, we have an image of... Everyone, I think people are quite familiar today with Auschwitz because Auschwitz was a death camp in which the gas chambers and crematoria were built in concrete and brick and even though they dynamited them, they're still there to see today. So there was hard evidence. Uh, and over a million people were killed in, in Auschwitz but there were five million Jews who were, who were killed in other places besides mm. Auschwitz and um, other death camps that were completely demolished uh, and then mass shootings. I mean, two and a half million people were killed by, by shootings. Mm. And my father's experience, um, he, he, he saw uh, these shootings, would, a lot of them would occur in, within the ghettos as well as mass, mass shootings outside villages in Russia in mass kind of graves. So my father's experience reveals a lot of experience from those from that earlier holocaust and i said to him look i really think it needs to be written down people read books and i mean what i have learned and this is really actually only just finishing the book last year it because of the some of the aspects of my of this of my father's experience it's actually given me a much better understanding of the predicament he was he was in 
and the trauma and uh, post uh, traumatic stress disorder that he suffered that he suppressed his whole life and you weren't really aware of that at all you just thought the way your father behaved was was just a behavior yeah he was just a busy he was your father he was the way he was Uh, he had his certain way of approach to life and you just accept it for what it is but actually in retrospect you can see that you know how traumatized he was the traumas became more evident the older he got. It actually got worse as he got older. And I think the importance of these stories and the story that your father has shared on video and you've translated into a book, they help to educate and hopefully help us to grow so that these things don't happen again. And I think it's a wonderful thing that you've done to to bring this book to light for your dad. And he actually got to see the first copy. Yeah, my father died at the, uh, in um, 2016 and I could see earlier that year I realised, because we, I had this draft that, well, since 2006 I'd been playing around with it for a decade, researching and adding. I put it into a, a, re- a readable form and had it printed out and bound uh, as, a, as a book and he read it, uh, could see that there was something tangible coming out of all this and he said, yeah, this is all correct. Mm. Yeah. So really, he was giving his seal of it. approval. He verified it, yeah. You know, his stamp of approval mm. on what you had actually translated into yeah. into a book. Into print. And into print, and now... It never started. There was never a plan originally to write a book. It's kind of just evolved and got a kind of momentum of its own. Yeah. You mentioned earlier the war crimes and your father uh, participated as a witness in, the, in 1970. And I know you didn't go there. He asked you to go to those trials and you were... I was doing my school certificate and in the middle of the year and it was the decision was made that it would be too damaging to my school certificate. In retrospect, you think it was just this is rubbish. <laughs> I should have just gone. What an experience to go to a... A war crimes but trial. <clears throat> amazing. Well, when we took the documents, I took it to the Sydney Jewish Museum... Uh, was showing it to them. Um, the, the historian there, Professor Quiet, said, "Look, your father's story is quite unique. Uh, it really needs to be um, backed by evidence um, because otherwise, you know, if people find they fault in it, then, then they it damages the credibility of the whole story. So, well, what evidence? Well, there's documents. You need to get documentary evidence about a lot of the stuff that's going on here. And he found a number of." archives in Germany that had documents relating to my father time during the Nazi period and um, and in particular he arranged access to the uh, war crimes trial files which were in the archive in Darmstadt where the trial was in 1970 and so two years ago just at the beginning of um, COVID uh, in January 2020 just as it was literally breaking we myself and my daughter flew to to Germany um, we had a few days in Berlin before we met up with Professor Quiet in Darmstadt because he speaks German. He's German mm-hmm. originally. And, uh, uh, you know, we're presented with, you know, a stack of files, folders of... And it's all German. So, I mean, I've got a schoolboy German and a translator on Google, but, I mean, really, he was able to kind of say this is... you know. So I ended up photographing all the wrong stuff. Uh, um, I, I photographed my father's... Um, the transcript of his testimony he was in the witness box for two days but in actual fact the archivist there um, very kindly um, actually gave me the um, 
recording of his actual testimony in the witness box because he gave his testimony in English with a German translator. Wow. And uh, so I have that and I can listen to that and there's my father's voice from 1970 giving absolutely crystal clear description of what happened in the Tomashov ghetto in evidence against these three killers, uh, one Gestapo and two um, Shupo. Shupo, Schutzpolizei, are the uniformed police, mm-hmm. same as our police. Gestapo, as we know, the secret police. So one Gestapo man and two police who were charged with over 50 murders from the Tomashov ghetto um, and... As it transpires, uh, my father's evidence was critical in getting the Gestapo man convicted of murder. Mm. Uh, but we, he didn't realise that, and we didn't realise that until we got access just two years ago that his evidence was critical. If he hadn't, it wasn't for his evidence, that guy would have been acquitted. And not many people who gave evidence managed to... Yeah. To, to, uh, their evidence wasn't, um, what's the words I'm trying, to, Tony? They didn't view their evidence and it wasn't valid the, in getting... The evidence was dismissed. Dismissed. And, Thanks and for helping with that. <laughs> look, I've been translating these documents that I had and I've got access uh, to, to more. Basically, um, what I now understand, and I've got the verdict, I've read the verdict um, from this trial. There were 50 witnesses who were survivors from the Tomashov ghetto, flown from very all over the world, US, Israel, Australia, to this trial for these three. And I've read the summaries of their evidence, of their witness statements, so, so of, of, of all the witnesses from, against all the cases, and they are quite compelling and some of them are quite horrific. Uh, I mean, I don't want to kind of, you know, one of these guys would go in grab a Jewish baby by the neck, lift it up out of its cradle and just shoot it point blank, things like this. I mean, really barbaric stuff, uh, dousing people in petrol and sending them on fire. Yeah. You read these statements, you just know that they're true or no one's making this stuff up. And yet the court in Germany, because of the way the German law was applied, uh, had such a high standard of evidence or such a high bar that... All the witness evidence, except my father's, was dismissed and they were acquitted of all those charges. Two of them had actually confessed early on in their police interviews to killing. One of them had confessed to killing a child. The other one had confessed to shooting someone else. They then withdrew their confessions and everyone pleaded not guilty to all charges. Uh, The Gestapo man that my father convicted, he never confessed to anything. The judges threw out all the evidence of all the witnesses and they convicted those two on their confessions. They said, no, no, we think that those confessions are true and you convicted on those crimes. But the Gestapo, Georg Bettig, was convicted on Henry's evidence. It was so great that your father could actually go there and and participate in these... But he didn't... My my father didn't realise that he convicted him because... He gave evidence in 1970. The verdict didn't come down until 72. He knew that they'd been convicted of something, but he thought that they were convicted of other murders. They never sent a letter explaining the verdict or anything like that, so it's only a matter of when you actually go back and look at it. I've got a better understanding of the troll than my father did. Mm. Uh, Kate Bush, Wuthering Heights. I selected this because I remember very clearly just before I left to go to... Uh, England in 1979 and then the first trip to Poland with my father in 79 that this was a um, a hit record then uh, and that's the reason that I'm playing it. 
Welcome back to 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly with Karen. Please go to Facebook and like the page Aging Fearlessly. I'm in the studio today with Dr. Tony Bernard and we're, we're speaking about the book that he has written, The Ghost Tattoo, and it's a story of his father, Henry Bernard, who was a local GP on the Northern Beaches. It's his life story. But So, Tony, we were just talking about the war crimes in, you're going to have to help me, Darmstadt? Yeah, the trial in Darmstadt, the, yeah. yeah. That's a hard thing to get, yeah. a hard word to get your mouth around. What impressions did you draw about the war crimes trial process? Um, what surprised me when I read the evidence and um, got a better understanding of the trial, um, just after our access to the, to the file notes two years ago, was that of the 50 witnesses that were flown from around the world to this trial, the evidence, only the evidence of one, my father Henry, was accepted by the court. The evidence of all the others was dismissed and all the cases uh, based on witness evidence was dismissed. I remember a lot of the witnesses, they were friends of my father's in Sydney, some of the witnesses from Sydney, and I remember them all talking about having given their testimony in um, uh, being flown to Germany. So they were all flown by the government over there, the West German government. Uh, In 1970, it was a big deal to, to be flown to Europe in those days it was, a, it was an expensive exercise you could just tell they were kind of elated having give, told their story to the court but when I saw that their evidence was dismissed by the court and then none of them realized this because as I said the trial was in 1970 or the trial stretched for three years till 72 most of them gave their evidence earlier on in 1970 I don't know why the trial went for so long but the, the verdict came down in 72 and None of them realised that their evidence uh, had been dismissed. And, and not only the evidence dismissed, two of them were convicted, two of the uh, Shupos were convicted on purely on the, their confessions at the initial police interview. The third one, the Gestapo man, Georg Bedig, that my father convicted, was only convicted on the one case of the murder of Dr Hirschsprung that my father witnessed. Uh, all the other um, murder cases against him based uh, based on witness evidence by other witnesses was dismissed. And these guys were really, really brutal mass murderers. Uh, uh, the crime's horrific. They invo- a lot of them involved killing children who were starving. I mean, the ghetto was, um, uh, was a prison, if you like. Um, the Jews were confined in this ghetto for over two years. The, German, the Nazi German uh, administration... Uh, massively reduced the food supply in so they're all basically starving if you see photos of people in ghettos that they're in rags they look like skeletal that's because they're all starving to death and that was deliberate policy they all went in as normal human beings at the beginning in 19 the end of 1940 and they were kind of walking skeletons two years later Mm. because there was a starvation and so if you're in your own town in a ghetto with your neighbors nearby people would, would sneak out to get food and they would trade things. And the Germans had this policy of death uh, for anyone caught smuggling or outside the ghetto and they implemented it ruthlessly and that's what these, mm. w- that's what these murders were all about, were the killing of uh, people 
outside the ghetto and usually this a lot of the smuggling for food and begging for food was done by children so these guys would shoot children in front of their parents mm. um, and for them to be dismissed and uh, they got peppercorn sentences of about six years and with time off because of the time on remand before and then parole they wouldn't have served necessarily much more than a couple of years in prison for the most horrendous crimes and so i got to say I was pretty unimpressed by the West German uh, uh, court system and I suspect it was really done for the benefit of the witnesses so that they'd feel good like a, a reconciliation court. They'd, they'd, they'd got to have their day to in court. To appease them. The witnesses felt that something had been done without realising actually not Nothing. much was done. So your research to corroborate your father's story of what happened in the ghetto, how did you go about that? There's, there's very little documentary evidence about the ghetto. Um, the, I, the court, there was, there was quite detailed summaries of the operation of the ghetto in the court records, which I have and I've translated. Um, there's the, uh, the US Holocaust, uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. They've got an encyclopedia of camps and ghettos. Um, so, and then there's uh, other stories from uh, on the internet um, uh, of story. There's one particular one from the uh, Yizkor book, I think it's called, by uh, Michael Grossman about the uh, events in the in in the ghetto in 1942. Um, as I said, there's not much documentary evidence beside the court process, but the court. The, the, the judges in the court made a specific comment about uh, Henry, that he was a unique witness and that they believed him above all others in, um, in the event, particularly of the, of the uh, murder mm. of uh, Dr Hirschsprung. Just recently, uh, my father well, he explained in, in his story that actually he married his girlfriend in the ghetto. We never knew that. We never knew that he was married to. We always thought it was a girl, his girlfriend. It was actually his first wife. It was his his uh, childhood sweetheart, sweetheart. Yep. and uh, they were at school together. And uh, he describes his marriage in his story and the fact that he makes reference that this was, even though it was in the ghetto, the, the registrar had a book and recorded the marriage in this book. Mm. And just recently a, um, a woman historian in, in Tamasha that I'm in contact with has located that book in the Tamasha archive and has sent me a... Um, copy of a photo of the that exact entry so mm. you know, bits and pieces of my father's story get you know as, as bits of evidence come out it just corroborates his story so the town where your father was the ghetto was Tomasho Mazowiecki yeah about 100 kilometers southwest of Warsaw not far from the city of Wuj Yep. Spelt Lods. Lods. Yeah. yeah, it's an L with a yeah. cross through it. Yeah. It's a very unusual W. w. It's, a, it's a very hard language to get your mouth around or yeah. your head around. When your father finally began to open up about his past and confided in you about his role in the ghetto, how did that change him? I started to understand his reticence uh, and regret, um, possibly even a little bit of uh, shame at the role that he played. Um, his father had been involved in the administration of the ghetto uh, in the what all ghettos uh, 
had a Jewish council that the German authorities uh, set up. His father was in the Jewish council. And my father, um, because of his father, uh, had a role in the administration of the ghetto as well. Um, the, the Jewish councils and the um, Jewish order service, which was a, uh, uh, became, get, became known as the ghetto police, have, got a, have been a, con- a controversial topic because uh, when they were set up in 1939, uh, they had no... Um, uh, there was no ghetto. People were living in their normal... The Germans mm. just set up a Jewish council and a Jewish order service to implement decisions of the council and the Germans would just speak to the council. Do get, I want, we need 100 workers to do this. Uh, here's food supplies for the Jewish community... You distribute it. You house the uh, Jewish community. The council provided um, hospital, um, school, soup kitchens, um, stuff like this, uh, and they needed an order. They were told by the Germans to set up an order service to implement their decisions. Uh, my father, he, the members of the council were very concerned when they were setting up the uh, Jewish uh, Ordnungsdienst or order service that. The, um, that the right people go into it, that they were very concerned about getting the wrong people into an organisation like this. So they put their sons into it to keep it uh, free from corruption. And that's why my father, he was to put it into this service by his father. Um, I never understood, but I can see now why he felt so conflicted um, that he may have uh, ended up... Uh, assisting the Germans um, in their destruction of his community and family. But he eventually left or walked away from he that quit, role? He quit after he was unable to save his mother from deportation to the gas chambers in Treblinka. Must have been... You, you can't even fathom what it must have been like for people like your father to live every day in fear for their life. Everything they he, did must have... They must have lived in fear. He said, when the Gestapo told you, do this or we'll shoot you, he said, they meant it. And we knew they meant it. And we knew that they would. Because mm, mm. uh, they did. Yeah. They did shoot people on a daily basis. And, and when I read the book, it's just evident that, you know, there was no chance if you didn't follow instructions. They all, they, basically, if you were a Jew in Europe under Nazi occupation... You were all enslaved. You were only kept as lo- alive for as long as you were had a use to the Nazi state, and you were all essentially doomed. You're damned if you do, and you're damned uh, if you don't. Yeah. And anyone who survived only survived because they had a role that was somehow uh, allowed to exist by the Nazi. So let's listen to your last song, "Africa" by Toto. Yeah, I, I chose this one because 1985, which was our second trip to Poland with my father, um, and I remember this was a song um, that was uh, common or widespread at the time. A popular song a popular at the time. Popular, popular song at the time. So we'll just help each other with yeah. words. <laughs> Sometimes you just can't find those words. So this is Africa by Toto. You are listening to Radio Northern Beaches 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. 
Welcome back to the studio. I'm with Dr. Tony Bernard and we're talking about the book he's written, The Ghost Tattoo, a story of his father's life. Tony, what do you want readers to take away from this book? My father went to great pains to put uh, what he had seen on the record for history. That's, I, I, I understood that was his motivation in getting me to film him. And I have tried to carry out his wish. Um, he wanted people to know um, what happened in his town of Tomashov, what happened to a lot of the people he knew and his community. He wanted to tell people how cruel the Nazis were. He used to say, that they're so cruel, why did they have to be so cruel? And he wanted to let people know how how evil and hurtful and terrible racism is in any form. And that was his motivation. Well, Tony, I thank you so much for coming today. I've read the book and it gave me a real understanding of the traumatic life that your father and the Jewish people in the ghettos and in Poland at the time and and other places in Europe Russia and uh, yeah the Baltics and what Ukraine. they and what they lived through and the torture the torment and very few survived and those who survived I'd say had real courage to move on and and that that's the other thing they were really tortured and then killed but they had 2 years of the most terrible torture physical mm. and mental and to come out the other side and I know they they carried it with them and some of it was hidden you know they didn't share it with people and as you said your dad started to share this when Tom Keneally wrote the movie Schindler's List which you had just shared with me while we were listening to that song then Africa that um many of the of the Jewish community saw that movie and started to open up about this story so it's a great thing that Tom Keneally's done in bringing that story to life and my father said when he saw the movie that's exactly what it was like yeah so he did a, a very very good job yeah. of researching and um and yeah Spielberg put it did an amazing job of of filming and, and making it a movie but thank you today everybody out there listening you know this is a book worth reading and i hope that you might take the time to spend a few hours and read this book tony's put a lot of effort into it and his father it's a lifetime of history and if you want to learn more just go to tony bernard b e r n a r d .com .au and look tony thank you for coming today your book launches very very shortly it's days away now and i'm very excited for you and i'm absolutely thrilled that you spent this time with me today i'm getting emotional now i really just love the fact that you've been with me in the studio telling the story well it's been a pleasure to uh, to speak to you today uh, about the story and uh, i want to thank you for having me you are more than welcome and to to henry that i briefly knew as my gp and had no idea there was a whole other life to this man so Cheerio, everyone. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. 
Join me next week for another episode of Aging Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, aging is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright outside. There's a sparkle in your eye. It's not all nine to five. It's a wonderful life Let's go and climb mountains high Swim across oceans wide Live out our dreams Just you and me Let your heart be alive There's no time to waste Gotta go get the most This treasure that you've got to find, baby, don't be shy. Let's go and take that ride. Taste the sweet and the spice, everything nice. Let your heart be alive, baby, just let your heart come alive, honey. Let your heart be alive.